Okay, we're gonna start looking at the Dhamma Chaka Bhavatana Sutta, setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion. And we'll share the screen. Now, some of you may have seen this sutta many times. I know for us, we certainly have. And it's, you know, easy to think, oh yeah, Four Noble Truths, Noble Eightfold Path, yeah, I know that. But um, one thing I remind myself of is if I'm still experiencing dukkha, if I'm still suffering, then there's something in this that I don't yet fully understand. <laughs> and so I want to really dig into it afresh every time if I can and see what it is that I might learn. So this is what uh, the two of us, and I think the Buddha would also say is the key to building up our strength, our resilience, our happiness, our imperturbability in the face of whatever might happen in life, and also the development of the mind to the point of full awakening and unshakable peace. As you know, probably this is the first teaching that the Buddha gave to the group of five monks um, who he had been staying with. I'll call them monks because that's basically what they were, um, mendicants, ascetics, that he had been training with before he became enlightened. And they had um, become very discouraged and disgusted with him for leaving the severe ascetic practices that they were doing uh, in the belief that that would purify the mind by um, torturing the body. And when the Buddha gave that up, of course we know that he was able to really um, find the, the, the key, the true path to awakening. And this is his formulation of it, of, of what that is, and also this is what he taught for his whole 45 years. Um, and, and really, it's pretty amazing that it is so um, clear and lasting. It's really a, a beautiful description of the Dhamma. So I'm going to read and explain a few things along the way. So this is found in uh, the Sangyutta Nikaya, in uh, chapter or book 56, that's number 11, setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma. Thus I have heard on one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Paranasi in the deer park at Isipatana. And there the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus of the group of five thus. Bhikkhus, these two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth into homelessness. What two? The pursuit of sensual happiness in sensual pleasures, which is low, vulgar, the way of worldlings, ignoble, unbeneficial, 
and the pursuit of self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and unbeneficial. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. So in this paragraph, one thing that we see is that, if you could uh, lower it again so we can look at that paragraph, thank you. Sorry. Um, is that, you know, he, he really um, describes those two extremes of sensual happiness um, seeing the the central sensual activities as actually uh, kind of crude and recognizing that they don't lead to the happiness that uh, is ultimately beneficial and also even though the um, self-mortification doesn't have that same kind of crudity to it it's painful and it doesn't yield the results. Now what's interesting about the the middle way is that it's not a midpoint between those two. It's not moderation in sensual pleasures or in self-mortification. It's a completely different way of living. It's a completely different life and training of the mind and it's complete it's a complete description of of how to live a good life and how to develop to the ultimate degree so this is what we're what we're going to see and this idea of uh, giving rise to vision and knowledge this is the the kind of um, deep intuitive direct knowledge that doesn't come through reasoning. It comes through realization. And that it leads to peace and enlightenment. This is what he could say uh, absolutely for sure because he has ha had that experience. Of course these monks at that time they didn't really know what had happened to him. They knew he was different when he approached. As he was approaching them they said oh we're not gonna you know, like really, um, you know, wait on him or um, be too welcoming because, you know, he's left the path. Uh, and then when they saw him, he was so radiant and um, he had this beautiful countenance and they couldn't help themselves but run up to him and take his robe and his bowl and make a seat ready for him and give him water to wash his feet. And so it's, it was clear that something was different, but they as yet don't know what it is. So as we continue, it says, And what, bhikkhus, is that middle way awakened to by the Tathagata, which gives rise to vision, etc., which leads to Nibbana? It's this noble eightfold path. That is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Or the translations now, most people choose a different word than concentration for samadhi. 
they choose something like immersion. Uh, and so you know, a way of talking about that altered state of consciousness that's so still and lucid, but not forced or focused in a way that's tight. So it's trying to give um, a more accurate description to what samadhi is. Sometimes it's also called uh, stability. Stability of focus. Mind. Yeah, I think focus maybe runs into a little bit of the same problem as concentration, yeah. mm -hmm. but stillness. Yeah, lucid calm is the mm -hmm. translation Ajahn Jayasaro used in in Ajahn Chah's biography. Okay. Um, so yeah, this is uh, this particular translation is Bhikkhu Bodhi. Is it right? This particular translation. Let us quickly see. His peak of body, yes. Yeah, and, and so from that period when Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi was translating this, concentration was the traditional um, yeah. use word they used. But it's maybe 20, 30 years ago. Yes, yeah. something like yeah. that. And now it's, it's evolved a bit in our noticing that people tend would tend to read this and then you know, see it as concentration and bear down on it, push, try to um, arrive at some goal, and that that's very counterproductive to our meditation practice. Um, so the, just to finish the paragraph, he's saying this bhikkhus is that middle way awakened to by the Tathagata, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. And he's, the Buddha is also referring to himself here as the Tathagata, uh, a term that's hard to translate, but it's thus come or thus gone. You know, this, this, this one to whom this has happened, this full awakening, this Buddhahood. And um, just to write here, while we are seeing the list of the Noble Eightfold Path, you know, to really reflect on what each of these means, because this is a powerful collection that gives us really everything that's needed in our development. So, right, right, um, as you probably all know, uh, you can divide these um, elements of the Noble Eightfold Path into three categories. Um, wisdom, moral virtue, and um, samadhi or uh, development of the mind. Sometimes it's uh, the, the practice is described as being a practice of higher virtue, higher mind, and higher wisdom. So the first two uh, right view and right intention are the wisdom factors here. And just to give the, a very brief description of what right view is, there's the sort of conventional level, uh, which is a right understanding or a right, um, some clarity around how things work in our conventional reality. And when I read to you the description that is common and uh, appears throughout the suttas, you might wonder how conventional it is, but this is 
this is what um, this is what the opposite is. So the wrong view would be that there is no meaning in giving, in sacrifice or offerings. There's no fruit or result of good and bad actions. There's no afterlife. There's no obligation to mother and father. There's no beings who are reborn spontaneously, and there's no ascetic or Brahmin who's well attained and practiced and who describes the, that afterlife after realizing it with their own insight. So this is kind of the, the way that a person has wrong view. So the opposite is to really understand that what we do matters, that there are good and bad results based on wholesome and unwholesome actions by body, speech, and mind, that we really, um, there is real benefit in giving and being generous in um, letting go of our own selfishness in making offerings that it opens up the heart now many of us can experience have experienced this ourselves and so we know it's true but this is the the shift that comes as as people move away from being very self-centered self-oriented and afraid really of life and then turning towards this kind of beautiful um, re result action that creates abundance in our own experience. And I'm not talking necessarily about a, a material abundance, although that happens too, but the uh, abundance of the openness of the heart. And then this, um, you know, understanding that there is something that comes after death, it's not the end, that there is, um, a, um, that it is important to look after and take care of our mother and father, that we do have an obligation to them. I had someone at our uh, sutta study, it was quite a while ago now, a young man who said, I don't like the idea of thinking that my mother and father should have any more regard in my life than anyone else. And of course, my thought is, how could we not um, want to give them more regard given all that they've done for us? Even in the cases where parents struggle tremendously and are um, maybe um, having a lot of problems and not doing you know, what we would hope they could do as parents, it's still the fact that they gave us life and helped us along enough to stay alive. And so it's, it's, um, it's really something to, to take in as a reality that there is this exchange in life. You know, I, uh, Santichita was talking about the exchange we have with the earth. And this is, you know, a similar on the larger scale, you know, really recognizing the this sort of 
correctness of our gratitude for all of the, the, the basis of our life coming from the earth and the basis of our particular human existence in this go-round coming from our, parent, from our parents. And uh, this, this part might be harder for some about um, the belief in spontaneous rebirth, but if you have any kind of have had background in other, another major religion, you know, like I grew up in a Christian environment and there was no question about uh, some, something happening after death and it would be spontaneous appearance, um, perhaps in heaven, perhaps not in heaven. But that spontaneous rebirth is not something unique to Buddhism. It's, it's part of what we'll see in, in religions, because basically we're all working with the same spiritual reality. And this is what um, people who investigate deeply or or uh, realize truths beyond the apparent um, physical reality that this is the case. And to also understand that there are those people who, you know, practicing deeply recognize um, that there is life after this one. Of course, the Buddha talked about um, lifetime after lifetime after lifetime until there's no longer any craving, which makes it possible for the whole process that has been the conscious stream of consciousness, you might say, or this kind of flow of karma to come to a point of stillness. So that's, that's the one aspect of right view. And the, the more um, transcendent aspect or um, definition, if you will, would be a complete understanding of Dhamma, complete understanding of the way things work, complete understanding of the Four Noble Truths, uh, the Noble Eightfold Path, dependent origination, without any doubt or question, um, just really really seeing for oneself how it all fits together. And this isn't entirely complete <clears throat> until full enlightenment. Um, there are um, fetters or barriers held onto until that point. But that point does come. And we're all headed in that direction. So we want to make sure that we um, really make the best of the time that we have. There's a clear understanding of what's wholesome and unwholesome with right view. <coughs> and this is very supportive to the rest of the Noble Eightfold Path. And all of the factors work together in their own way, but this really knowing, you know, what's what's good, what's not good, what's wholesome and what's not wholesome figures in with every part of the of the Noble Eightfold Path. 
So we move on to right intention, and it's basically to be without um, sensual desire, in fact, practicing renunciation, letting go. It's to be without cruelty, without ill will. And so the, a wrong intention would be uh, these, this sensual desire, uh, ill will, or cruelty, and the opposites of, for instance, for instance non-ill will, is very much, um, you know, tending towards and completing in loving kindness, and non-cruelty, tending towards and completing in compassion. And so the Buddha uh, talked about how before he was enlightened, he thought, oh, I really have two kinds of thoughts, the kinds of thoughts that are on this one side of sensual desire, ill will, or cruelty, and on the other side, which is renunciation, non-ill will, and non-cruelty. And that this, this really identifies the wholesome and the unwholesome. And that we can make a choice about what we think. And this is powerful. This is really how we train the mind. Um, so having right intention, keeping the mind on that side of the wholesome, and this is very crucial to our own happiness as well as to how we interact with people in the world. And we'll talk more about that. How do you do that? How do you keep the mind from going into those, those areas where we're really making ourselves miserable? So we'll look into that more as we go along. And then right speech has really four aspects to it. Being truthful, not being malicious or divisive, not, you know, saying something to someone to, you know, about what someone else is doing or saying that divides them from each other, but instead saying things that bring harmony to people and not speaking harshly but try to speak in a way that's kind um, or, you know, it's like, you know, truthful and beneficial. And also to not engage in frivolous speech, um, speech that is really carries the mind away from what's important. Right action is really avoiding killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. Right livelihood is to abstain from any kind of livelihood that brings harm, direct harm, whether that's um, trading in weapons or alcohol or poisons or things like that, or um, you know the kinds of actions like. And the Buddha said that we shouldn't buy or sell, trade in living beings. That's something to reflect upon. And um, how does that, how does that, um, how can that be a wrong livelihood or a right livelihood? 
you know, how do we treat living beings um, in, in this world? One of the problems we find for ourselves is that so many different jobs in the world can have some amount of harm in it. You know, as we look at how uh, things are so complex now in the way that products are created and transported and you know, all of that. And I think the Buddha would say it goes too far to blame ourselves for every part of that. I think what he was pointing at more was to have a livelihood that is intended for the benefit of others and not for their harm and not to take advantage of living beings and not to um, cre create more suffering in the world to the degree that we can. So, you know, how we approach our work also matters. Uh, you know, we. You may have worked for companies, I know I have. Uh, same business, but a different attitude. One where they're really trying to um, you know, help the, the people that they're serving, the clients or customers, and really trying to be transparent and honest. And then you can also have the the sort of a very different attitude of trying to get as much as you can for as little as possible, trying to, um, you know, trick people into doing what they wouldn't do for their own benefit. And so these are the ways to look at what is right livelihood. Right effort. You know, this is really around the mind again. What is What are the wholesome and unwholesome mental states? How do I bring wholesome mental states to the, to the fore? How do I keep that in mind? How do I um, dissolve unwholesome mental states? And how do I keep them from arising? So it's interesting because I think a lot of times we start to get the idea that right effort is how much I work or how much I push. Um, or maybe, you know, how do I keep a balance in my sort of activities? But that's really not what the Buddha was talking about. The Buddha was talking about the mind. And when we take care of the mind, then we're going to have the wisdom and the ability to keep the, the actions in our life also more in balance. Would you say that's true, sister? Absolutely. <laughs> so then, right, mindfulness is really the four foundations of mindfulness. And of course, uh, there's like uh, how many books written about it, and it's very useful and important and crucial. All of these, these aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path, you can just see how they come together and support each other. Without right mindfulness, without a, a, a presence and awareness, a clarity of mind, uh, we can't do much of anything else. And to be able to focus on different ways of being with the body, with feeling, 
the mind itself and the Dhamma, the principles of Dhamma. This is a huge area of, of practice and benefit. And then finally, right, samadhi, right, immersion or concentration. And it's usually defined as the four jhanas, uh, but I think we could also um, take into account the, the um, measureless deliverance, deliverance of freedom by the Brahma-viharas. So they, they can also, loving kindness, compassion, altruistic joy, and equanimity can also bring us to um, deep concentration, deep, deep immersion. So that's the, the really brief overview. And I don't know if there's anything in there that's new or helpful to you, but I'll be happy to hear any questions or comments later on after we move through the sutta. So then, after the bhikkhu, after the Buddha presents this, he says, Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, death is suffering. Union with what is displeasing is suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. And, of course, the word suffering is the translation used here for dukkha. Other words could be used, um, dissatisfaction or feeling uh, like things aren't quite right. I mean, there's a range here. I really like using the word dukkha instead of translating it at all. If we come to a, an understanding of what it means and the fullness of its facets, it really helps us to know that, yes, this discomfort I feel or this slight disappointment or feeling feeling like something's not quite, not quite complete or right, that this all uh, falls under this, this first noble truth. So there's dukkha here. And uh, I'll probably talk more about this later, but this is key when we're having any kind of discomfort, particularly anything that, you know, is, is upsetting to us, brings um, sadness, brings fear, brings anger, brings uh, resentment, any, anything like that. This is the, this is the category or this is the, tr the noble truth that helps us to work with those feelings and work with the underlying um, causes of those feelings. So this is the first noble truth. There is this dukkha that we experience. It doesn't mean that everything's dukkha. Uh, the Buddha did not say that all things are dukkha. We certainly experience pleasure also. But this noble truth is like the red flag. This is what it notifies us that there is something that we can learn and understand and free ourselves from. There's some kind of clinging here. And that comes to the second noble truth. He said, now this because is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It's this craving which leads to renewed existence, accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there 
That is craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, craving for extermination, or craving for non-existence. So the Buddha, of course, he went on his quest because he wanted to find the end of the round of rounds of rebirth. How do we get out of this situation where we're constantly, you know, being reborn and experiencing dukkha and dying? It's like this ongoing, endless um, cycle. And so he's uh, talking about, you know, this craving, this is what leads us to being reborn. It can be a really forceful push to want to enter uh, another existence. So it's accompanied by the delight of wanting to be, wanting to feel, wanting to experience, uh, wanting to know. And also there can be uh, this craving for non-existence. So it can be really a little bit tricky, like was, well, was the Buddha craving for non-existence when he wanted to be finished with the rounds of rebirth? But that takes it to the extreme where there's still craving, there's a pushing away. And I don't know if you've had this experience in meditation where there's no desire for anything and there's no desire to get rid of anything. And that gives us a taste of what it's like to not have the craving going in either direction. And there's also no interest in sense input in that kind of state of, of meditation. So it's like we can get a taste of this, what it's like um, to not have the cause of suffering right there. But this noble truth is saying when that craving is there, that's when we have suffering arise. And by seeing what the cause of the suffering is on a specific case-by-case basis, we have the opportunity to let it go. And this is what the third noble truth is pointing out. Now this is the third noble, the third noble truth, the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. It's the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same craving. The giving up and relinquishing of it. Freedom from it. Non-reliance on it. To actually be free of that desire to have or to get rid of. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. It's this noble eightfold path. The one we just walked through very briefly, right view, etc., to right immersion. This is the noble truth of suffering. So now the Buddha is going to go back over these four, and he's going to talk about the, what we, our, our job, you might say, our task with each one of them. This is the noble truth of suffering. Thus, bhikkhus, in regard to things unheard of before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light. So this is like, he really saw it directly, knew directly, this kind of direct experience, which he says is the only way we can really see the Dhamma. We really know it. Um, we know it so completely that it goes much more 
deep and rich than we can possibly describe. But this is what happened to him on the night of his awakening. He really saw this truth. This, and then he says, this noble truth of suffering is to be fully understood. This because in regard to things unheard before, there arose in me vision, knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light. So again, this, this knowledge, this vision that came to him was that suffering needs to be understood. We need to turn towards it, not try to shove it away, not try to act like it's not happening but to actually look at it, be present with it, come to fully understand it. And then the third one, this noble truth of suffering, has been fully understood. When we have that awareness, um, to really recognize what it is that we're suffering over, and to really fully understand it. This is the... This is sort of the formula, if you will, of how to deal with the experiences we have that create this dukkha. And then he goes on to the origin of suffering. So each of these has these three components. He talks about the noble truth, how we are to address it or work with it, and then a realization, a recognition that we have completed that task. And this is something that's very prominent in the Buddhist teachings, that you know, you're, you're coming to understand something, you understand it, or you see it directly, and then you, you actually turn and acknowledge that you've seen it directly. It's like solidifying that in place. And so... This noble truth of the origin of suffering, again, you know, the things he hadn't heard of this before, the vision arose, the knowledge, wisdom, etc., the light. This noble truth of the origin of suffering is to be abandoned. So that language is a little challenging because it's not the noble truth that needs to be abandoned. It's the origin of the suffering, the cause of the suffering that we abandon. Hence the craving. But it's not so easy, is it, to say, well, I'm going to stop craving for um, this person who I love very much, uh, who's passed away, you know, or whatever the, the dukkha is arising from. And so this, or the, some of the things that are happening to our world, you know, we may feel that suffering and, you know, to, to really come to understand it, to um, abandon the craving. This is a powerful experience and practice. So this noble truth of the origin of suffering then has been abandoned, recognizing when that's fallen away and we can see it and there's knowledge, wisdom, true knowledge, and light coming from that. And then this is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. Again, these three parts. With the cessation of suffering, this is to be realized. And when we realize it, 
we know that we've realized it. We recognize that suffering has, has gone away, and I, I'm aware of that. And finally, this is the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And this noble truth of, le of the way leading to the cessation of suffering is to be developed. So developing the Noble Eightfold Path, developing our moral um, ethics, our, our morality, our, our mind through meditation and mindfulness, and our wisdom through right view, right intention, and so on. So this Noble Truth um, of the way leading to the cessation of suffering has been developed. So as we're developing it, even if it we don't feel like, oh, this is complete, it's really good to actually take stock and say, okay, there are these things I understand now that I didn't understand before, or maybe more the case, these things that I'm experiencing based on keeping the five precepts or, you know, having a regular meditation practice we see the changes in ourselves, uh, the resiliency developing, the equanimity developing, and so on. And then after the Buddha delivers this you know, very neat, tidy framework, um, he says, so long as my knowledge and vision of these Four Noble Truths as they really are, and there are three phases and 12 aspects. So that's the, the three parts for each one, obviously, adding up to 12. Was not thoroughly purified in this way. I didn't claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world with its devas, Mara and Brahma, in this generation with its ascetics and Brahmins, its devas and humans. But when my knowledge and vision of these Four Noble Truths, as they really are in their three phases and twelve aspects, was thoroughly purified in this way, then I claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world with its devas, maras, and brahma, in this generation with its ascetics and brahmins, its devas and humans. This knowledge and vision arose in me. Unshakable is the liberation of my mind. This is my last birth. Now there's no more renewed existence. This is what the Buddha said. Elated, the bhikkhus of the group of five, delighted in the Buddha, blessed one statement. And while this discourse was being spoken, there arose in the venerable Kondanya, the dust-free, stainless vision of the Dhamma. Whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation or whatever is subject to arising, is subject to ceasing. This is the sort of most common way in the suttas that the experience of stream entry is described, is really seeing that everything's falling apart. And that is a direct experience, knowing and seeing that everything everything around us, everything we think of as me or mine, is falling apart, and that's its nature. And so this was, this was what came to him, which was actually 
uh, an amazing experience because it meant that the Dhamma could be communicated and someone else could understand it based on the Buddha's description. And then uh, when this wheel of the Dhamma had been set in motion by the Blessed One, the earth-dwelling devas raised a cry. And what they said was, at Varanasi in the deer park of Isipatana, this unsurpassed wheel of the Dhamma has been set in motion by the Blessed One, which cannot be stopped by any ascetic or Brahmin or Deva or Mara or Brahma or anyone in the world. Having So the, this idea that the Buddha became enlightened, he understood, he talked about this, and now it's out in the world to be understood and, and lived by all of us following him. And so this um, cry went up from the devas, and having heard the cry of the earth-dwelling devas, the devas of the realm of the four great kings raised the cry, etc. Having heard the cry of the devas of the realm of the four great kings, the Tawatinsa devas, the Yama devas, the Tusita devas, the Nimarnarati devas, the Paranimita Vasavati devas, the devas of Brahma's company raised the cry. So this, these are all these deva realms, realms of heavenly beings, um, one on top of another. And this um, communication up through the, the heavens, up to the Brahma realm. And, um, you know, declaring that this amazing event occurred. Thus, at that moment, at that instant, at that second, the cry spread as far as the Brahma world, and this 10,000-fold world system shook quaked and trembled, and an immeasurable, glorious radiance appeared in the world, surpassing the divine majesty of the devas. And then the Blessed One uttered this inspired utterance, Kondanya has indeed understood. Kondanya has indeed understood. In this way, the venerable Kondanya acquired the name Anya Kondanya, Kondanya who has understood. And that concludes the sutta.